Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 108. You're joined by William Brent Bell, the director of Brahms, The Boy 2, in theaters everywhere, Friday, February 21st. William is such a passionate storyteller. He was a delight to speak with. This is a really fascinating look into his process and the magic tricks of making horror films. We go into pretty much all of his stuff, including Stay Alive and The Devil Inside. Just wait until you hear how the iconic Connect the Cut scene came together. You will get chills listening to him tell that story. We revisit his exceptional reinvention of the werewolf genre with his film Where, leading up to the original The Boy in 2016 and the making of the new sequel. We cover everything from how many dolls were used on set to how they were designed and handled. We really got into it. We do have a spoiler warning for you. If you have not seen the first Boy film and do not want the major twist revealed, you will want to pause this episode right when we start the section on The Boy and return after you've seen it. If that doesn't concern you as the sequel is meant as a standalone film, then have a blast with episode 108. This is William Brent Bell. If you don't want to upset Brahms, you must follow the rules. Never leave Brahms alone. Only Malcolm brings deliveries and always play the Boo Crew really loud. Is this your new friend Brahms? What are some of the things you talk about? The other families, he's loveless. Want to take the doll away from him? Yes. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy Studios, an acclaimed writer, director, and producer who has contributed some of the most talked about and inventive horror films over the last two decades. These include Stay Alive in 2006, the record-breaking box office possession movie The Devil Inside, 2013's cult favorite Weir that has become a favorite, a title emphatically exclaimed as a rite of passage werewolf film by fans who've discovered it ever since its release. 2016 brought us a new classic, The Boy. The movie was a delicate, mysterious folktale wrapped in artful scares and cinematography so beautiful that it leaves the viewer quite breathless. Our guest has an impeccable and creative vision that has resulted in images that have been forever burned into the lexicon of classic horror with a refreshing twist. Who can forget the feeling of seeing that pristine porcelain doll on the old bed in the mansion forgotten about in the woods or the crucifix that is revealed to be carved into the bottom lip of Maria Rossi and her ward at the psychiatric hospital in Rome. This is why we watch horror films. He has returned with a much-awaited sequel to The Boy, Brahms, The Boy 2, in theaters everywhere, February 21st. We are honored to welcome its director, William Brent Bell. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. That was you. really cool to listen to. Oh, man. It was a really nice... Uh Introduction. Well, thanks. well, thank you, and thanks for making what you do and the very unique way you do it. It is very appreciated by all horror fans everywhere, and it's a real honor to have you here. Awesome. Again, we're fascinated by your instincts. Right. The art of your direction, the inspired writing you've brought to the game over the years, and we want to take a, a quick look under the hood, so to speak. Sure. To ask you about the films that 
inform those choices, starting way back with your earliest memories of experiencing the genre as a, as a viewer and how it made you feel? Sure. I mean, it's, it's funny because uh, for me, the horror genre, those are the movies I remember um, most being a kid. I mean, you know, it's like Star Wars or something, but it's like, it's horror films. And I think because I was a product of divorce, my parents kind of let me watch whatever, <laughs> or my mother every other weekend <laughs> would take me to see horror films. And to this day, she would only see her every other weekend. And she said that she, she's like, I never showed you like Halloween or Friday the 13th. And I was like, I don't know who else did, you know, like, of course you did like that <laughs> person, but a movie like the other, not the others, but the, the, the other about the two twin twin boys, Yeah, that movie stuck with me. I saw that at home when I was a kid Trilogy of Terror is something that my sister showed me, you know, the ABC yeah, yeah, film yeah. series. And, um, you know, it was the Karen Black series. It was the one, obviously, about the Zulu doll. I forgot the name of the actual part of the show. Yeah, that was a creepy one. Oh, it was crazy. Yeah. And, and so I, my whole life, no joke, I guess I had an, a, a active, um, a, an active imagination as a kid. It went in kind of a dark space. But, um, like, when I was in my room at night, it's kind of like this. It would get dark and when we had to open the window, you know, cause it got too hot or something like I would think that a witch would come into my room and she would be walked around the room and she could buy whatever was in the room. And if I didn't hide, she would find me and take me, you know, and buy me. And, um, and so then after seeing trilogy of terror and then that whole weird thing I had about this, witch, I thought until I was like 10 years old, I thought if I put my legs down on a couch and I let them dangle, that that little doll was with that witch under the couch and she would cut my leg, my, my feet off, you know? Oh, and I really believed it way after I should have, but I did. But, um, you know, as far as like uh, other types of movies, I mean, obviously Halloween is kind of my favorite all time horror film. And what I love about it is, you know, we associate movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th with, what they kind of became, which were fun and fun and fun, but they kind of became more and more caricatures of themselves. And now we're kind of bringing them back to a more grounded character level. It seems like with the new Halloween movies, but back then, if you watch that film, it's, you know, a couple people die. Only a few people die at the very end. I mean, it is a real, you know, low key thriller. So for me, I was really always inspired by these very character driven kind of careful horror films. I know that the trilogy of terror one, the doll was nuts. So it wasn't particularly careful, but it was, you know, cause what, what rung true with me. And I remember as a little kid is when she got the doll, at the beginning of that, it had a little necklace. And if you remove the necklace, it said that the spirit of this Zulu warrior doll would, would be released or something. And I'm a t little bitty kid watching this thing. And, and she leaves the room. And when she comes back to the living room, the doll's missing and she looks around and she, goes underneath the couch and pulls out the little chain. And I remember as a little bitty kid going, Oh, where's the doll? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, right. like that means the doll somewhere. And, um, which is storytelling, you know, on a pretty cool level, uh, to, for me to, to see that and then to apply that to everything I would do from thereafter, you know, that kind of suspense of revealing something pretty nuanced that landed so easily. So, cause it was so well-written and so well-executed. So, you know, and, and that's kind of my theory on horror in general is, is like keeping things pretty grounded. Um, I think if you go see a horror film and, and it's really over the top and really fantastical, it's a really fun experience. It could be great. But when you leave that movie, you take a deep breath and you're like, that was awesome. But thank God I'm out of there. Now I can relax. 
but for me if you if you make something that's that's very relatable with the characters and and grounded on some level to where you, you could imagine it really happening to you and it could happen at your house then when you leave that movie and you're like oh thank god I'm out of that movie that was crazy I can breathe again and you go home and everything's fine go to sleep wake up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water at three in the morning and on your way to the kitchen, you know, you do a double take because you see what you just saw yeah. in that movie yeah. because it's, it's sunk into your head because the elements of that story are relatable to the audience. And to me, like, that's what I try to focus on is making things relatable and believable. And, um, and it's effective most of the time it works, you know. Do you remember the very first screenplay you wrote? Uh, something, it's just a normal movie about my life sure. or something. But the first horror screenplay I wrote was Stay Alive. Oh, that was? a full wow. one. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And um, I'll tell you what's funny is uh, we, me and my writing partner, Matt Peterman at the time, and we still work together some, but he moved to Woodstock several years ago, like five years ago. But we did several movies together and s- sold all sorts of stuff that never got made and things. And we had written a movie, a big techno thriller about a video game, kind of like Born Identity with a video game. And, um, but I really wanted to make movies and I didn't want to just write them and they'd be put on a shelf or something. And so that's how we kind of got the idea for stay alive was like, to me, it was very much Freddy Krueger, but instead of, you know, you die in your dreams, you die, you know, in the game, if you, yeah. if you the way you die, they play the game. So that really high concept drove me, you know, in a way. And, um, I felt like for me, I played a lot of video games back then. It was a very relatable subject that like. Well, I'll tell you a little story. It's like, I, I remember there was a game called Fatal Frame. Do you yeah, guys remember that? Yeah, I do. And um, really elegant, great. I think it was a Japanese video game, but I'm not sure. But um, in that game, you know, you're walking around with a, with, a, with a camera. And if you put the camera up, you could see a ghost if a ghost was near you. And the way you knew a ghost was near you is that your, your controller would vibrate. And I'm sitting there in my underwear playing this game, you know, all day. And at one point I paused the game and I went into the kitchen and I remember, I don't know if it became unpaused. It just, I started hearing, you know, and the controller was vibrating, but I wasn't even there playing the game. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a really scary moment for me. This could make a really cool movie. You know, if you can kind of uh, play up those scares of, like I said, real life sitting around playing a video game and then bumps in the night become so much more frightening. Um, I love that. I remember Lauren and I, we watched it together yeah. when it had come out. We had rented it. And oh my God, it was so fun. And the cast of that movie at the time was, uh, I mean, amazing, right? There was yeah. Adam Goldberg and uh, Frankie Muniz and Milo Ventimiglia yeah. was in it too. And who's the girl? Samira Armstrong yeah. was in it. Oh, Samira. so fun. And what is funny about that is also I'd read that it's it, technically Disney's only slasher film. Because it was a Hollywood, it was a Hollywood Pictures, right? Touchstone Pictures. Yeah, yeah Touchstone right. Pictures. Wait, is that right? Yeah, Touchstone. And um, yeah, they brought back the Touchstone label for the movie. So when we made that film, we didn't have a distributor. It started off as a little tiny independent film and then it just grew and grew and grew. And, and then when we got back from shooting, um, Disney was like, we want to buy the movie, but you have to make it PG-13. And I was just like, oh no, this is terrible. But um they said, we're going to bring back the Touchstone Pictures label. We, we closed it after, after Sixth Sense. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, you know, that's a good movie to follow. Yeah, right? hell yeah. And, um, but they, I don't think they did many after that. It's, just, it's not quite their wheelhouse, you know? Right. Like they're great at what they do. 
which is Disney movies. And um, so to try to like do and market a horror film like that, I had to go and screen the movie with Dick Cook, um, who was the chairman of, of Disney, you know, or I don't know what his title was. He was the head of all of it. And he and I and like two of the people sat in a big screening room on Disney <laughs> watching Stay Alive. And he's this 70 year old guy who, uh. who's in charge of all the Disney stuff. The sweetest guy. And I'm sure he just had no idea like what the hell he was watching or why he was watching it. <laughs> yeah. so he was very funny. sweet. Yeah. He's like, oh, you've turned Elizabeth Bathory into a Disney princess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that would be so cool if they would have done that. <laughs> and that movie was produced by Mick Chee, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we wanted to make a movie and a friend of ours had a visual effects company and, and we said, look, you know, it's got a video game in it. That's going to be very expensive. Would you put skin in the game and, and do the video game? And then we'll find the other million bucks. Like we do it for 2 million bucks. And, and then he read the script and was like, look, I'll invest the 2 million bucks and do the visual effects for the other million. And I was like, cool. And then it just kept growing. And, you know, we, I had an office with me to share offices with me. Gee, I was working with him on something else, Matt and I, and, um, brought him, we went and saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre together oh, in 2003. Cool. Yes. And we left and he was like, man, Michael Bay is popping champagne right now. Why aren't we doing movies like this? And I looked at his executive who had just read Stay Alive and I was like, say something, man. <laughs> yeah. and, and at first he didn't. And, um, and then one thing led to another and Mick G signed on. And then when Mick G signed on, a guy named Peter Schlesel, who was the head of Sony, had just left Sony. Just like, he's really responsible for like the grudge. And he signed on and then they brought on Spyglass and it just got bigger and bigger and it went from a, little $2 million indie film to like a $10 million, like quasi studio movie. Yeah. So, which you learn a whole different set of skills in that environment. You know, you see the politics and, um, so it was, it was really fascinating, but, um, but a great, great learning experience. Oh my God. I still draw on that, that experience every time I'm shooting or every time I'm developing anything. Did they ever turn that into a real game? I mean, because I remember watching it going, man, this game is yeah. badass yeah. that's inside the movie. Did there was ever talk of turning oh, that into a real game? That, uh, that was when I, um, we were developing it independently. We brought on American McGee. And so somebody, you know, he had this great horror video game in Alice. And um, it was like, he'd be perfect to, to create this game in the movie. And so we developed it with him for a while. Because the thing is, a video game is fairly expensive, but compared to a movie, it's nothing. But then to do it independently, we could have made a AAA game for about three million bucks. And the problem when you make a game in this environment independently is just like anything, you're swallowed by the big titles. And, um, but with us, it was like, hey, we make a movie, all the marketing for the movie is a commercial for this video game. Exactly. And That's you perfect. guys will be printing money with this game and it'll be so fun and of course, this was in 2005 or something. So, you know, these kinds of games were really just getting amazing. Fatal Frame and uh, all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, they, they, once it got, the movie got bigger and became a little bit more studio-like, they just, they just didn't see it. You know, huh. they didn't see that as a viable option. I get emails maybe every week from all over the world about it. I've had multiple people try to create the game independently. Oh, I, have, wow. I have all the assets to create the game, you know. And it, it, it still would be a great game. It, and that was like the craziest thing. And then Cliff Blazinski came on Cliffy B to be our video game designer after it fell apart with American, unfortunately. And, um, but that was such an integral part of that movie. And even while making it, 
you know, when you're watching just the wireframe rough versions in post-production, the studio people, you know, they're just like, cut these shots. Nobody, want to, nobody wants to watch people play a video game. And of course, you're watching incomplete shots. And when we finished the movie, what did remain in the movie were the most kind of memorable, talked about things. And it was like, yeah, people sat there in theaters and were engaged by a video game. Especially uh, now on uh, Twitch, people do it every day. Yeah, isn't it crazy? <laughs> you're right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so I, I, I talked to Peter Schlesel, who he then became the head, ran film district. And now he's, he's kind of ending focus features. And now he's kind of independent. And, um, and he told me years later, he's like, man, we were ahead of our time. Yep. He was like, we left $10 million on the table opening weekend because nobody really understood what that, that people, like how it translated, not just a game translating into a movie, but a game within a movie translating into a story yeah. element of a movie. Right. right. And, um, brilliant. And, you know, still, uh, I was talking the other day of like doing, I mean, stay a lot, a sequel and, um, you know, with, with augmented reality now, oh like imagine my yeah. how the stories can develop. And um, instead of playing catch up to the idea that it was like taking it to a whole nother level. So that would be really cool. You know? be, There's that just would so be much. so cool. Amazing. Yeah. I smell a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it'd be great. And uh, like doing sequels like that are, are to me like the funnest prospect or one of the, you know. Yeah. The Devil Inside, yeah. an- another film you wrote and directed, a possession film delivered in a documentary style found footage narrative so effective and absolutely unforgettable that movie has lived on as an internet meme with some of the scenes from it. it is so so creepy the connect the cut scene yeah absolutely terrifying yeah what do you remember about filming that that scene in particular I'm, you know i'm glad you asked me that i was thinking about that scene this morning what's really cool about that i mean and it's funny in the film Connect the Cuts is Connecticut because that's where they're from. And that yeah. was her like stuttering. But that never quite, I don't know if we even made that into the final cut. But, you know, auditioning the role of the mother was intense. To find a, a woman that age to go crazy is pretty hard. And Suze Crowley, she's batshit crazy in the best way and just freaked everybody out. But what was really fun is we shot that, primarily we shot that in Romania and we shot it in Rome a little. And, uh, and so Fernanda Andrade, who played Isabella, all the actors came early. You know, I had them reading books on exorcism and possession and the way all that worked and so that they would really become familiar with it. And um, but then Suze came early, but I didn't allow her to meet anybody else. And so until we shot that scene, Fernanda, who typically would, you know, would would run those lines with her co-star, they never met. So I, you know, we snuck. Sue's into her uh, medical room or her room and then all this anticipation for like a week and a half of like the mother and daughter are finally going to meet and so then we follow Fernanda down the hallway and the guy's telling her like how crazy this woman is and how um, you know there are rules and be careful and the place becomes a little more dark and then when the door opens and she sees her mother for the first time, that's the first time those two people ever met in their life. Incredible. And, and so, so when she walks in, when she walks in and sits down and, um, and starts the scene, and you know, we didn't have a lot of money to do a lot of takes. It's like, uh, you know, we did a few takes probably, but that first take, which is most of the scene was those two people acting for the very first time, you know? And of course the character was not supposed to be there for 20 years and hadn't seen her mother. So, so, so that idea that, they don't quite recognize each other was really important and it worked so great. It's just, and then I didn't tell, I didn't tell Fernanda that, you know, when she, that 
towards the end of that scene, the climactic moment of that scene, Sue's kind of leans down and, and, and beckons Isabella to come closer, yeah. in which case yeah. it's like, don't get too close. And she whispers something to her, um, which alluded to the fact that she had had a, um, had lost a pregnancy and, um, which she shouldn't have known, which is a sign of possession. And, uh, clairvoyancy. Yeah. And then I told Sue's and then just scream in her face, but that wasn't in the script. And if you want, and she goes into kind of a conniption fit. And of course, you know, Fernanda's reaction to that was, you know, completely authentic and weird. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a, a really, really fun scene. And, you know, it ended up getting, you know, parodied in, in Haunted House yeah. or something. Yeah, that's right. They called me and they were like, hey, you know, we're thinking of doing some, we're going to do some scenes from the movie. How did you do this and this? And I said, I'll show you how I did those things, but you have to let me come to set and watch you do it. So then they invited me and I sat there and I watched them do those scenes. That's so <laughs> Which was awesome. hilarious. You know, it was so funny. What are, wow. your, what are your thoughts on uh, demonic possession? Are you, are you a believer? I guess not, but, but because like, that's the thing a lot of times by these types of movies is you get to take an idea that, may be real may not or may not but because we're telling a fictional story it's like we can suppose it's real by the end you know and and so for me priests going and doing um exorcisms it's like there are all these things that happen during an exorcism you know but i've never seen proof of it and so this movie you know it's like these these you know, these priests who are kind of rogue record it all and and all those cameras gave us cutting points so that we can like kind of create interesting action without it, you know, with it being organic to the story. But I'm like, they, they had proof on their cameras, you know? And I'm like, that's the only thing we don't have yet is proof, you know, of somebody levitating for real. And, and I've, I always questioned myself going, gosh, you know, does the devil know if a priest is wearing GoPro cameras now? Right. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and that's why they keep it really low key. But, um, it's definitely an unknown. It's just, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, I remember the wardrobe designer called me from Texas and said somebody was debating with her about that film. And she's like, you don't understand. I was there. It's real. And I was like, well, that's exactly my kind of the opposite is like we kind of it's not real. And we, in the movie, it's real. Anyway, it's uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm just ready for somebody to trick the devil to the degree to where they can get some of this stuff on camera. But that was just kind of the fun of the movie is like, well, we don't see that anywhere in the real world. So let's create those moments, you know, yeah. where they actually do discover that possession is real. Do you ever go back to the uh, 26 page diary that, that goes back to the Roland Doe case, 1949, which inspired a William Peter Blatty's book? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've read a bunch of books, but they not nothing like that seemed like that. No, I don't think I read it's, that. I think it's yeah, I think you can find it now on, online. There's some versions of it where some pages are missing, but then there's some com there's a complete version out there. It's pretty chilling. I bet. I mean, it's just it's a short twenty six pages, but what that family went through with the boy, you know, in in uh, in Cottage City, uh, Maryland, yeah, and then St. Louis and the Alexian Brothers uh, Hospital. It's very chilling, man. Is that and they put him on the train? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I did read some of that in April. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this. We're developing ideas like for a prequel to that movie right now, oh, nice. um, awesome. which is, I don't want to get in. It's so cool. <laughs> I mean, Ooh, it's I'm so a, excited. It's so cool. Um, it's, it's like so fun to be able to go back to stories like that and then build on something. And one funny thing I'll say about that is like in writing it and it'll be like current day because it's kind of bookended with, with Maria Rossi sort of like her today. And it'll be like, uh. You know, Centrino Mental Facility, current day, 2022. 
And I'm like, it seems like a space movie. Like I'm writing a space movie <laughs> right, in 2022. Right, right, right. It sounds crazy. <laughs> like aliens or something. But it's nice to have like uh, 10 years have passed to kind of like play around with what that story could be. But anyway, so I did read some of that. Lorenzo de Bonaventura actually like asked us to take a look at that, mainly for the train stuff. Interesting. And there, were, there was a show you were attached to for a while that I heard for Fox called Haunted that was also based on mm-hmm. like tales of demonic possession, like a real, real Yeah, world. yeah. It was based on the Demon of Brownsville Road, which um, my girlfriend at the time, her mother gave her that book for Christmas. Um, the Demon of Brownsville Road. On Ohio? No. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, that's right. And that's where her family was from. And then she was like, hey, can we make this into a movie maybe? And I was like, yeah. But you know, it's a family going through demonic possession. It's hard to make that fresh, you know, sort of. And then I spoke to Chris Morgan and uh, Ainsley Davies at Chris Morgan Productions. And then we decided, oh, let's try to turn this into a a series, you know, that kind of takes one case and stretches it out over an entire season of 10 episodes, in which case it was great. And so, you know, we developed the whole pitch and um, actually took it to Fox and they bought it in the room and took it off the table and uh, wrote a great, cool script. And it was a really great process. And then they were going to have Friday night horror nights for Fox and they launched it with the exorcist show. Oh man, that show was so good. Yeah. And that, but that, and that was the show that kind of took our spot, but they were like, if it worked, they were going to fill that night with, um, all horror and it worked, but it didn't work well enough for them to do that. But that would have been really cool. Oh yeah. It would have been been amazing. AMC was doing that too. They were trying to create like a Friday night horror night that M night was going to like host the whole thing. And, but then they didn't. But that's always the trick with horror is people never believe in it long enough, like the powers that be, you know, yeah, they yeah, always, yeah. and then you read horrors back and I'm like, it's never left. Right. It's always <laughs> here. It's never going anywhere. It just evolves. And uh, so it's, it's hard. Some, I think it's becoming knock on wood easier for people to understand that horror is not just something that we all connect to, but good character driven, nuanced horror is what we crave. And it really works. Everything, all of, you know, the genre has a really wide spectrum of styles and tones. But, but in particular, it's like uh, these, you know, all the modern stuff right now. It's so just great and inspiring yeah. you know, from Hereditary to A Quiet Place and um, Get Out. Like, it's just, you know, these are great movies about family, you know, and uh, it's already kind of go off no no no, i mean (laughs) talking about inspiring i wanted to just briefly touch on i don't know how you say it we're or were where where well that's the way i say it one of the most interesting and exciting takes on werewolf lore that possibly ever made your approach down to the way the story was told to its air of mystery the actual look of the beast itself was so different how did you end up there to the finished product and did that nail what was in your head for what you were thinking I would say that in a way, yeah, I'm, I'm most proud of that movie of anything I've done. And I was probably, you know, I was, I wrote, wrote that with Matt and directed it and, you know, kind of produced it with him and I edited it for a year. So, and, and it was, you know, the first day of shooting, we had 14 cameras going at once, you know? So it was like a real, so basically when we finished Devil Inside, it was like, wow, you know, we could do, we could tell a lot of stories like this, you know, we could like the idea of taking these really big mythologies and then boiling them down into something you could be like, Oh, that's what the mythology we all know is based on. Right. But this is what really some crazy. And so with where the conceit is, it's a mental condition coupled with, or it's a, you know, it's a physiological condition um, that's kind of coupled with 
the gravitational pull of the moon to kind of make this perfect storm that a person 500 years ago would be like, I saw a wolf man, you know, right. but it was just a, a guy that's, you know, going nuts and has a condition and it turns into this great story. And so it was like, well, what if we went back and where, where would that story have started? And to me, it would be in Europe. So after we finished Devil Inside, I'll tell you, it's like Thursday, no, Friday morning after the previews of Devil Inside, Thursday night, you know, I was at Starbucks and my agent was like, okay, these two movies have a green light now, which one do you want to do? And one of them was where? So it was, we, I had taken it to Jason Blum and I had taken it to, um, I guess the guys at Sierra and they kind of come up, they both came up with a plan and, and, and we chose to do it with Steven Schneider and Lorenzo Bonamatura and Nick Meyer. And it was cool because we actually only had a, a little outline and they green, they green lit the film, green lighted the film kind of based on that. And then when they went to Cannes, they're like, well, can you create a trailer for it? Like, and so we scripted like a three minute trailer and then they gave me 15,000 bucks to go shoot for one day. And then we shot that. And if you look at the trailer of the movie and the trailer that we shot before we made the movie, they're extremely similar. And um, one's just a little more contained. And, and then they took that and that's how they kind of sold the movie, I suppose. And um, then they just let us go off to Romania and, and shoot this crazy thing. And that was when things like GoPros were new and we first were going to do found footage. Then we said, no, it seems like it's, that's become a thing. And so let's just make it um, a mixed media movie. Unfortunately in the marketing, they called it found footage. So people assumed it was, but it actually wasn't. And that was just a, a remnant of a description from long ago. Sure. But um, <laughs> creating a, a werewolf that didn't turn into a dog was super fun, super exciting. And the guy that played him, my friend, Brian O'Connor, when we did the little short, we were like, well, we need somebody. And it was like, what about BOC? Um, he's a bass player for the Eagles of Death Metal and super talented guy, but he's not an actor necessarily. And so he just did the short. And I thought we would hire any number of people. Javier, you know, Botet, uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he read for it. He's read for all my movies. Like I've tried to get him in every movie for years. And um and then I was coaching, you know, kind of Brian just a little bit more. He had to be French, but he didn't talk. And he just was made for that role. Like he was, he was perfect. I mean, he looks, we didn't do anything to him. You know, that's the way he looks all this hair all over his body and stuff. Um, except we just made him appear even taller than he is um, with kind of the camera angles and stuff. But anyway, that was super fun. It was a movie shot in Romania that was set in France. So you had. Romanian actors using French accents to speak English, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then also mixing up like uh, mixing up the different subtitles and stuff like all that stuff is great fun and, and building up the kind of what if, you know, this kind of thing is real. And um, this werewolf mythology is based on something real. And then, of course, if you've seen the movie, we really take the gloves off in the second half. Mm -hmm. Violence. <laughs> yeah. And the guys from 8711 were the stunt team. And those are the guys that ended up directing John Wick, oh, Deadpool. Shit. And wow, Tom that makes Blonde. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so they had their team there. And, and what's just fun about making movies, especially movies like this, where you get to have more creative control is like there was a scene in the middle of the movie. He escapes and he goes to this building and, and he's holed up at the eighth floor of this building. And they're going to send a SWAT team up there. And he, um, he, you know, and, and they have all these monitors that are there have the SWAT team's cameras, you know, and in the script, it was just they're down there. And when the SWAT team activates, you just see all the monitors click to static. And then, you know, but there was you don't see what happened up there. 
But when we got to the set and we're doing location scouting, this place was so amazing. I mean, it was, it was condemned and they had to make it safe for us to shoot. But, um, and it was like, got the, I got the stunt team together. It was like, what can you guys, you know, let's come up with like 10 kills like in the next day or two. And they did all these great tests. And then we ended up just changing the schedule and shooting a day in this and killing, doing all these amazing kills and stuff, which became kind of one of the cool parts of the movie. But it was never supposed to like even be in it until like a week before we shot it. Wow. But, but, but having talented guys like that, you yeah. know, who are like, fuck yeah, man, you're... And then they go and they film it and they put in special effects and they put in score. And, you know, it's really kind of funny looking, but it's like they lay out all these ideas and, you know, then start picking and choosing and combining stuff. It was super fun. That movie was crazy to make. It was just nuts. I got to say that there's no way that M. Night and that crew didn't base their character of Kevin Wendell Crumb yeah. on what happened. Because, it, it, come on, right? I mean, I'm telling you, here's the thing. I saw that and I was like, and my, my buddy Simon, you know, he's the guy, he's my friend as a, you know, he was one of the stars of Devil Inside and he was the guy in Ware who shaved his head and, and he got like buff for that movie, worked out for months. And, um, it's identical. Right. Yeah. The, the so, transformation, you know, just the way he just gets taller. You know he, what I mean? His the action, he, the way he throws. The way things. he runs. Yeah. Right. The way he runs. On all fours. Yeah. And, um, and so I kind of said that and nobody's really ever like kind of said it back to me. I'm like, am I crazy? But <laughs> I was, there was this DGA event in New York a few months ago. And so I flew up there and it's once a year, they'll just have feature film directors come to this dinner. No press, no, no dates or anything. It's, so you're just there with like Martin Scorsese and Chris Nolan and other directors who aren't as famous and, you know, Fetty Alvarez. And so M. Night was there and I was like, all right, well, I need to, I'm just going like, to introduce myself. So Steven Schneider, you know, is the guy who produced that movie, who also produced Devil Inside and where. And um, oh. so I was like, hey man, we have a mutual friend, Steven Schneider, you know? And he's like, oh, I love Steven. And he's like, you know, who, who, what's your name or whatever? And I said, oh, I did Devil Inside. I did where? And he didn't even acknowledge it. He had, he acted like he had no idea what I was talking about. He had no idea who I was, no idea what those movies were. And then he, we just had like a very cordial conversation. And that was before I found out he had a show on Netflix, which is basically like the boy, you know, what is it called? That new show about the baby? Oh yeah. I forget the name. Servant. Yes. It's on Apple, yeah. Apple streaming, right? Or yeah. And the next day, actually, coincidentally, I went to breakfast with a producer friend of mine and he was like, I didn't want to tell you this on the phone, but have you seen Servant? I don't care. I mean, it's not, a, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. Yeah. about that stuff. But I was like, what is it? He goes, well, it's like your greatest hits. And, you know, <laughs> and, it's, and it's like oh, Night Shyamalan's show. And I was like, really? I go, not only did he see those other movies, but he must have seen The Boy too. As well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but he wow. acted like he had no idea who I was. Oh, but man. I was really interesting because it's, you know, yeah, it's like, that's such a similarity, which yeah. is cool. I mean, you know, Hey, you know, what do they say? Uh, uh, yeah. Whatever they say. <laughs> we all know what they say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> best form of flattery. Yeah. yeah. Imitation. Imitation best form. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. it. Well, <laughs> anybody, anybody who's listening who loves split, I mean, go, go back and watch we're, and uh, you, you're going to love we're right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into obviously the boy. Yeah. Right. 2016 from a script from Stacy. How do you say his last name? Manier. Manier. Turning the boy into reality for that film. It had something a lot of films, perhaps not of this time had an element of, and that's a, a quirkiness to it, a mm -hmm. strangeness to it. 
feels like a palate cleanser when you watch the original boy. Talk about the importance of tone and atmosphere that is so vital in playing with the audience in this world, the world of the boy. Yeah. Pretty much the most important thing is kind of the tone of that movie. And, you know, compared to say the new one, it was a little more, I wouldn't call it fantastical. It was like she was in a bit of a dream, you know. She was like a whimsy to it. Yeah, Yeah. She's left in this gorgeous, you know, gothic castle alone with this kind of Victorian era style doll. And um, so, yeah, it had a very magical quality to it. And it was very important in the story, for instance, that like, you know, there were times that she speaks to people from the outside, like her sister and even in post-production, like the, one of the producers was like, we got to shoot that. And I was like, well, we're not supposed to, no, I don't want to shoot it. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to ever break out of our bubble of this castle because she's trapped in this strange dream world. Right. And um, other than the people coming into it, she should never leave, you know? And so then we ended up, after we saw the cut, it cut together, that played really well. So it was like, okay, let's do that. But um, yeah, I mean, there's just a quality to especially with her character was coming from an abusive relationship and um, dealing with losing a child. So to find the surrogate in this weird lifelike doll in and of itself is just weird and kind of tonally strange to wrap your head around. So it was fun to try to bring all that to life. And Daniel Pearl, who was the DP on that, who's done some amazing like legendary horror films, especially in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The original was his first thing when he was 23 it's like, uh, and then he also does all this great beauty stuff. So to, he, he combined it all into this to make this kind of gorgeous, whimsical, magical movie. Even like the way it was written. There's a line from uh, Mr. Hillshire that says, uh, it happened little by little, then all at once. Like yeah. everything kind of, it's like a fairy tale, you right. know, the way it's, it's in the presentation. It's well, really, really. Stacy's an incredible writer in that space. And he doesn't necessarily... Um, choose to to play around in the genre space much and i'm like but you're so good at it yeah. you know and um because you know when we had the idea for the sequel for instance to jump ahead to that i kind of had the idea and then i, I presented it to him at dinner you know and he's like oh, let me think about it and i gave him the kind of the outline sort of but um it needed some more meat to it you know and what he brings is this real interesting character work to these uh, movies and then he really does write with that atmosphere where you can read it on the page, the kind of the whimsy of it and also the creepy suspense of it all. It's yeah. like he, it's, it's all written there, you know, which you don't read a lot of times um, any kind of movie. Sometimes they're just purely bl- blueprints and then the movie turns out great. But in his case, he really, really it has this tension of detail that translates to how I then make the movie. And I'll tell you one little thing kind of like this is, is in the script. There's a part point in the film when Lauren's character is alone with the doll in the kitchen after somebody left and she thinks she's crazy. So she finally kind of is like, you know, she wants him to eat his food and cause he was kind of giving her signs earlier and now yeah. he won't. And then she's like, if there's a presence in this house, would you please yeah. Yeah. like give me a sign? And, but in the script, it's like, was a very funny, in that particular, it was just like, she's like yelling at the house and it was interesting. And, and Stacy was there that day on set and Lauren and I got together and, it was like, well, let's approach it more. Like, it's so sad and kind of heartbreaking to have to even ask that. Am I going crazy? And then she like kind of tears up and says it in this. She can almost hardly get the words out. And it was really moving to me. And Stacy came up and he was like, that's not at all how I ever saw this playing out. He goes, that was really cool. It was a really different um, take. But that's kind of the fun of making a film is you get into the rhythm of a tone. And then it starts to inform every little moment like that. 
So yeah, it's uh, the tone of that was so fun. Wow, and, and, and we got really lucky to be able to make a movie like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that too because when you read interviews with Stacy about writing the original boy script. That seems to be kind of how the script informed itself as well. Like he got into the rhythm of writing and that's how he came up with the twists. Mm-hmm. The whole yeah. idea wasn't there yet until the end of the script was written. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, and Stacy even was like, I don't know, man, is this crazy? Him coming out of the walls? This is going to be, this isn't going to work. I had another, ver- another version where we just show her sleeping in the bed and then we pan over and he's standing over her bed. And, and that's how we, and I was like, no, I think we can make this thing work. I think we can make it. Like the reveal of him is, is going to be fun and it's going to, and it, and you know, thank God it really actually, you know, it really worked. Yeah. Yeah. I love how prior to the twist, it plays out as a whole different movie almost. Yeah. Where it's like, well, it's paranormal, man. There's something going on, yeah. but you're not showing us what's going on. Yeah. You know, until a certain point you're like, Oh shit. I yeah. See that coming. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. It was interesting. Cause I was like, I think people are going to, the twist is going to land and they're going to like that. But then after that settles down, they're going to like, wait a minute, now what am I, I'm watching a slasher movie. Right. I didn't know if that's what I signed up for. So I was like, let's just make sure we keep the pace of that as fast as possible. And can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And, yeah, yeah. And, and I think too, like elements, you know, when he asked to kiss her and stuff like that, that's the kind of fun, weird stuff that yeah. makes all that so memorable. That movie. The marketing doesn't really reveal the plot twist from the original Brahms. Is there anything you can tell us about the new version of Brahms? The marketing for the first movie, it was great because you don't always have the kind of protection from a studio to hide a, hide a twist like that. And, um, and they'll give it away in the trailers and stuff. And in that case, they made sure that we had to sign NDAs and like he wasn't, that character was not on the call sheet. So it was really a great secret and it really worked. So this time it's like, I think it's more learning a little bit more about kind of the depth of that character and that world and Hillshire Manor. I mean, I can't give too much away, but um, that to me was what made another movie really fascinating was to, was to approach the story from um, another family's completely clueless point of view and have to experience it themselves and kind of walk themselves through it and how they react. And then of course, in a way, and I, th- I think this isn't giving anything away. It's almost like people are kind of out there going, oh, this is maybe a prequel or something, but it's, it's not. But it's, it's kind of a parallel because, you know, like that doll, it's almost in, in the first film, the twist was, oh, it's not supernatural. It's, it's a guy coming out of the walls. Well, this time as you see in the, in the trailers and stuff, it's like there's a supernatural element. And so the conceit really was like, no, it was always the doll. It's just, it, the, so the doll is what turned the guy in the first movie into that. You know, that's what drove him insane to become murderous and evil and ultimately had to be hidden in the walls is because this doll had an effect on him. And now it's having an effect on our character in this movie, you know. And um, so the question becomes, like, is he going to become like that guy? And has that happened before? And which maybe is too much information. (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of in the trailer. So, yeah, 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 it's definitely in the trailer. I want to talk a little bit about the doll and who designed the doll and the animatronics, how many dolls were made. Yeah, it looks like it's moving. Yeah, where can you get one? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it looks like it's we're we're seeing it move for the first time in the trailers. The eyes are blinking. There's things flying out of the mouth. It's Yeah, that's a little different. And um you know the doll itself it was it was it was when I first went in and talked to them about doing the movie, I had, you know, these kind of porcelain Victorian era ideas. But really what inspired me, how I wanted to make the doll was based on like this is another one of my favorite movies, The Omen, 
but yeah. like Damien and, and all the great classic kids and like the other, like these great creepy eight year old, usually boys, sometimes girls who were always, you know, beautiful and, and they weren't frightening in the way that they looked. It's just what they did, which then makes it scarier because, you know, they're kind of a sh- uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. And so for me, it's like the battle was people assume that to make something scary, it has to be horrific looking. And I was like, no, let's make him perfect. And, and you know, like, like the, his eyes, for instance, are, are the real types of eyes that you would buy if you lose an eye human. Like those are real human replacement wow. eyes. Oh, wow. Just wanted him to feel as life life as, as possible, sort of. You know, to me, it's always, yeah, he's this beautiful little kid, but he's holding a knife behind his back and you never know what he's going to do. You know, we on set, we had, I'll give you some pictures, send you guys some pictures of it, but they're great. But it's like we had three dolls in the first film, we had four in the second. And uh, they all were on set in these little coffins, in these little like uh, lucite coffins. Um, so you'd see them rolling in like three of them identical, like, you know, it was very <laughs> so creepy. Cool. Uh, I have cool pictures <laughs> that I'll show you. But, um, and they're all different, you know, because there's like, there's the doll that you would carry around, which was lighter. Um, then there's the stunt doll, which needed to be more durable. And then there was a doll that, you know, um, he had posable arms and legs and you could have him do certain things. You know, it was nuts. It was like even up to, to, to me, that was kind of the thing that I was most focused on in the movie was, was trying to make this doll perfect, which I know if I hadn't liked him, I would have had regrets about everything the whole time. And two days before, the last thing we did was cut his hair and, and they were like, how do you like it? You know, and it was like this shaggy haircut. He looked like a, a male figure skater and was had these little, little wings on him. And I was like, this is horrible. Like, what are we going to do? People are going to laugh at us. And, um, and so Gary Lucchese and I, who's the president of Lakeshore, sat there with the, the hairstylist and she kept trimming and got it to a point. She's like, let me finish and style it a little and we'll do the camera test in the morning. And I promise it'll look good. And I walked on set with the camera test and he, you know, I was like, oh, it looks perfect. This is great. So, you know, it's really hard sometimes to nail something like that in a yeah. movie. And so it was really satisfying that he worked and then kind of continued on, which is a big reason we, we ended up making the sequel is because he seemed to strike a chord, you know, with people, which is what I hoped. And um, in particular, people who don't like Jared Kushner. <laughs> in, terms of, uh, in terms of the pre-production and research for this movie, did that take you on a path, perhaps, or a journey to, I don't know, let's say Key West, Florida, to a little place called the Fort, uh, what is the Fort East uh, Montello Museum, maybe? Do you see a little doll called Ronald? Oh the yeah, doll? No, I know Ronald the doll. The <laughs> interesting story with him, right? And um, he was definitely part on my wall. You know, like some really cool shots of him were framed on my wall uh, at the office. Um, Did you take those? I didn't take them. No. Okay. No. <laughs> Wait, why? You, you, if you take pictures ask, of the doll, you're supposed to ask for permission. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Everything you do in that room with Ronald the doll, you're supposed to look at him and ask him for permission. Say, Ronald, can I take a photo? It's creepy, right? Which which I saw some of these parallels in the movie, in the, in the boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, the parents are like, you know, Ronald, you know, behave now, you know, and I was thinking, oh, yeah. wow, they're acting like it's, I mean. Yeah, no, Ronald was, Ronald was, was a big inspiration in general. I mean, he's like kind of a sock puppet, kind of. He's a little different look. Yes. But his lore and his kind of mystique definitely was was a big part of like kind of the inspiration yeah. for how to approach him. And and by the way, um, Todd Masters at, at Masters Effects in, in Vancouver, they were the guys that. So, I mean, he was, he was sculpted out of clay. So, you know, you want to, sometimes you're like, Hey, can't you make a 3d model and we can look, but it's like, no, this is, you know, we, and then 
we were in Victoria Island, so you have to jump on a helicopter sometimes or a boat and fly over to his studio, sit there. I mean, there was a time like where there, we have to approve the eyes like once and for all. And so it's like, okay, get on a helicopter, go over there, look at the eyes, make the decision, and then be back by lunch, you know, to the office, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it was, I really appreciated how seriously Lakeshore in particular took the design of the doll, you know, and every little, like I said, they, they took a lot of care with the twist in the movie and they took a lot of care with how, and letting me design the doll the right way. And same thing with the mask later, you know, it, it, was, it was really nice and it paid off. I mean, it, it worked, I think. Would you do anything as far as handling the doll on set? Was there any uh, kind of uh, things in place to keep the doll away from actors until scenes happen to kind of empower the doll? Yeah. I mean, in particular, it was more like the opposite. It would be putting the doll in places where they don't expect him to be. A lot of times if he's, you know, if an actor is doing a scene with somebody off camera, it'd be nice to have that actor and they'll run lines with him. As far as the doll goes, if he's not on camera put him up and they're careful with him and put him back in his little thing. And, um, and, and in the case of like with Katie in the new film, it's like, there was a great moment where she came into a scene and had to go in and open a door and he's just sitting there, you know, looking at her, uh, which she wasn't supposed to be there at all. But, but we, we played around with that all the time. Um, he, uh, you know, it's funny when people meet him for the first time, you know, it's like meeting a celebrity and you're like, oh, I've seen this person on TV or something. I kind of have a preconceived notion of what they're like, but this is a doll. And, and then it just becomes really hard to handle. And I mean, you guys know sort of, cause you have a lot of these here, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, but it's like, okay, this isn't a person. And then like, wait, did he look at me or is he about to? Cause that's, I think a big part of certainly the first movie was like, you're waiting for him to, to do something, yeah, you know, right. the anticipation of that, which is. Partly why with the sequel, I was like, okay, we get to kind of do a little bit of that now. Let's try to, let's, you know, let's have fun with the expectations of the first film and kind of play into them in the second one, you know, because um, we kind of pulled the rug underneath all that with the first twist. And so this time around, I was like, oh, let's play around. Like, what if he could move or he was supernatural, which is terrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs> in, terms, in terms of the dolls, was there any reports of perhaps any paranormal activity with the dolls or anything no i mean you know i think that chris um convery had some experiences where he thought the doll was was um touching him like and and touching him on the back of the neck oh, and weird geez. things like that and it was like no nobody you know i when you first told me about it i was like are you trying to tell me that we were pulling a prank on you because uh, we didn't do anything and um and then i realized oh no there's no prank it, like he really thought that when he wasn't looking, the doll would move his hand and, you know, touch him in different ways. That, that sounds bad, but um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, but there weren't, uh, you know, I don't know if I can't remember any like really good scary stories as far as him being yeah. in that respect. Gladly. Right. I and mean, I don't think I would have gone back for. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like the, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have to have the set blessed and right. do all that James Wan stuff. You don't yeah. want to deal with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Poltergeist, the curse and, oh, and, and uh, exorcist, there's curse. curse. I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's like, I don't want to hopefully not become part of that. <laughs> right. Or, right. Or, well, speaking of Chris, I mean, to talk about, about the amazing cast, you got uh, Chris Convery and Katie Holmes, and then you've got um, the, the guy from the witch, mm -hmm. Ralph, uh, What's his name? What's his name? Einstein. Einstein. Yes. yes. Yeah. And what a voice on that guy. My gosh. Even Crazy. if he speaks, it's scary. It's <laughs> nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> but he, yeah, talk about rounding up that, that group. Yeah. You know, um, 
Katie was like right there on our list when we first compiled it. And then um, I got a call from Gary Lucchese and he was like, so Katie's people really love this for her. I'm like, okay, cool. That's great. And, um, you know, she's going to read it this weekend. And that usually, those kinds of things go on for months and years, you know, to cast a movie and stuff. And it was Labor Day weekend. I was like, well, sure. She's not going to read it Labor Day weekend. And then Monday is like, she called, loved it. And it was like really quick. And it was like, all right, we made a deal with her immediately and kind of we're off to the races. And uh, Chris, you know, was a, a kid who was cast during an exhaustive, you know, kind of process of seeing every young male actor his age range. And he's just really dynamic in what he can do and how tender he is and how affected, but also how, how um, subtly evil he can be. Yeah. And, um, and of course, it wasn't until I really we started working with him and doing makeup tests that we realized that he has like, like porcelain skin, like sure. the most white, yeah. perfect porcelain skin. And if you look at him next to the doll, their profiles, especially right there on the yeah. TV there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, um, it's weird. Like the, their nose and everything. And I, it, you know, and I, I liked that he had the shaggy hair cause it reminded me of the guy from the first movie that came out of the walls. And I was like, okay, good. We can play with that. I didn't expect him to also be so perfect with his skin and, and his ability to, to emote with just glances, you know, in a scene, you know, and, and it would be great. And he would have one thing going like, okay, give me evil. Give me, give me. And then he'd just go into something else. And then it's like, okay, now you're scared. And you're going to whatever. It was just really cool. He was so amazingly um, adaptive to those kinds of things. And Ralph, you know, it was one of those things to where I don't think they, they didn't realize who he was, you know, and they were like, what are you talking about Ra- Ralph Einstein? I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, he's like a legend to me, you know what I mean? And I was like, yes, like, let, make him, you know, Joseph the caretaker or whatever. To the point, I mean, he was very involved in his every detail of his character. Uh, it was very relatable to his own father. And right when we shot the first day with Ralph, uh, the producer's realized like what he was and they were like okay we all huddled around they're like what can we do we need to write more scenes or write him into more scenes <laughs> yeah. or we need to make like sure that every time he's on camera it counts you know and so that turned in you know that was awesome and um there were questions you know as to the fate of his character um in different drafts and people were like I don't know. We can't kill him he's, he's the, you know he's <laughs> things like that I mean I won't say what happens to him but He's, he's incredible. And he, and he, um, I can't say enough about him. I, I'm seeing him tomorrow. I saw him just the other night, you know, he's in town filming, uh, Macbeth with, uh, Denzel Washington. Wow. wow. And, um, and of course he's just, you know, got the green Knight coming out, which looks nuts. And he was showing me all the concept stuff before. And now I see him as the green Knight, and, you know, he's just very powerful and, and especially in that space. Owen Yeoman, uh, who plays the father, he just has this quality, you know, completely opposite to, to kind of, um, Joseph's character, which or Joseph, which is um, Ralph's character, to where it's like uh, he's 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 English, but it's he has an almost an all American quality where it's like he's a, such a perfect father to this family who's willing to kind of do anything to make his wife and son uh, happy and healthy, and so that's why they move out to Hillshire Manor, unbeknownst to them, to just kind of get away from London. And that's the same house as the first one? Yeah, so it, they move into a house, like a, like a big guest cottage, you know, in these big estates. They would have these where they would let their family live. Right. And um, and then when they go and walk around and, oh, this is so beautiful. It's like, well, what the hell's that? Yeah. And it's kind of in a state of disrepair now and it was being remodeled and was abandoned. And so it looks a little different and we're see, we see different sides to the house. So I thought we were going to go shoot like in Nova Scotia or something. 
at first. And then they're like, no, we're going back to Victoria, which is, you know, which is a great place to shoot. It's very beautiful. And, but the house, it's like, great. Now let's show different sides and different elements to this house that we barely even touched on in the first movie. Oh, it's um, exciting, man, because yeah, that house cool. is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm big into I'm, architecture yeah. and stuff like that. So, you know, you, just seeing the house of the first one, it's amazing. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, you guys, if you just went up, ever went up there, it's a museum now. Oh, so it is, oh, it's wow. an actual practical yeah. home. Yeah, no, it's oh, been there for shit. 250 years or wow. something. It was built by the big, these big barons and they um it was a, a military academy it was a hospital it was um a, a music school and um now it's a museum huh. so when we would shoot there it's it's like we weren't allowed to touch the walls or lean on the walls we had just people if we wanted to move something they had to move it it was crazy so we recreated a lot of it on stage so that we could get more intense you know i mean um it's Nuts. It's like walking through your place. <laughs> it's like oh, a museum, a, you know? That's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> so but, is this, is the sequel something that people can go in and watch cold without having any idea of the lore and mysteries of the first, the first yeah, film? Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, because that, like I said, the kind of the cons- part of the conceit was now we're going to, to follow a, f- a family there and they experience it for the first time without much tutelage you know like mm. in the first she kind of got the rules and so now the, the rules kind of uh, present themselves mm. to the kid and um to jude so it's totally it yeah it's it's i think it's kind of interesting of i would probably want to go back and watch the first and that would even make the second one better and vice versa they just kind of complement themselves really right. well um each other but it's it's completely it's like a standalone story oh, that's exciting yeah. i want to touch a little bit about what's coming up ahead for you in the future as well, because you got some great stuff you're working on. I've heard about this project separation. Yeah. Separation is like a really personal movie to me. You know, it's kind of Kramer vs. Kramer meets mama or something. Wow. Like, it, <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. No, and, and, and that was, I, I was in a meeting rel- TV separate from this and some separate from movies. And somebody goes, by the way, there's something you might like the script. It's you like Kramer vs. Kramer. And I was like, Oh, it's one of my favorite movies. Cause that was my childhood. You know, it was that exact thing. It's like, oh, you should find the script. And I had to go hunt it down. It had been written a while back and I expected it to be a mess, but I knew I wanted to make it regardless of what the script was. But it was actually really cool, you know, and I'll sit in Brooklyn following this um, young artist family. They create kind of these really dark, macabre comic books that they were turning into a television show in the past. And, and they're these vintage puppets, you know, and the show would have been with these vintage puppets that they created and um, and it all fell apart as it does in entertainment. And then they had a child, and now here it is, seven eight years later. And the husband's never gotten a job. She had to, the wife had to go get a real job, and now they can't afford that. So he has to either be a dad or he has to be get a real job. And so they're going to get a divorce. The wife's going to take everything from him, uh, which is very much like what my life was kind of like in a weird way. And she owned the brownstone. She can take the kids. She had all the power. And he's kind of like you know, what happened to my life. And before he, that really becomes final, she gets killed. And so then he has to kind of become the father that he always should have been to this daughter that he doesn't know that well, who's coping with the loss of her mother. And she starts coping with her by seeing kind of an imaginary friend that is kind of an extension, like her favorite toys are these puppets. So it's an extension (coughs) of that. And um, of course it turns out to be like, no, that's your mom. She's back and she still wants her daughter. She still wants custody of her, of her daughter. And it was great. It was like, like Rupert friend, 
plays the main guy, uh, this um, uh, Violet McGraw from uh, Haunting, Haunting Hill House. House. Yeah. yeah. And Dr. Sleep, you know, she's incredible. She plays the daughter. And it, it was really cool because uh, Mamie Gummer came in to play the mother. And the mother is very much the Meryl Streep character from the original. And I was like, she'll never want to do it. And then I got a call and they're like, hey, like her people want her to do it. And this is like a year after looking for people. I was like, you're kidding. And so that was really cool and perfect. And then uh, Brian Cox comes in and he plays kind of oh, that's that's father in law. He's awesome. Yeah, he's, he's great. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's just incredible. It's really cool. So I'm just, I'm in the um, kind of final stages of locking picture and we're going to do a big screening, you know, in a couple months. Cause it's like, it was an independent film, which is great. It's exciting because it gives us a lot more freedom, but it also, makes the process a little longer you know and i'll be sure to invite you guys oh please do that'd be so great awesome yeah and then news just broke that uh this new project of folk horror film lord of misrule yeah lord Lord of misrule is um because i was doing these two movies kind of back to back kind of they overlap the boy and separation i was kind of doing them at the same time almost and so i knew i wanted to do more stuff when i got back to town and i um i've brought on a, a producing partner. Um, his name is James Tomlinson and we're kind of launching my production company, which is the um, machine room. And the first project he brought to me, which they had, you know, a guy named Tom DeVille, who's a really cool genre writer and super smart writer in, in England. He um, had just finished it after writing for five years. And it was just a great timing where James happened to be talking to them and they were like, nobody's seen it yet. Do you want to see it? This could be perfect for you guys. And it's one of these scripts where two pages in, it's like, okay, this is next level, like writing and um, real complex, rich, unique mythology about paganism that's really visual um, and very, but also easy to understand, which is, I think, so important in the complexity of like a storyline like that. Wow. And, um, and just a really uh, character driven piece about this small town um, outside of London that, you know, um, every year they'll do kind of a, a pagan. Uh, you know, their history was paganism, but not anymore. And they'll do this kind of vaudevillian show, which is uh, shows the Lord of Misrule versus the Galawag. And during that big festival at the beginning of the movie, the daughter disappears into the woods and then she's never seen again. And so then the story is kind of the mother who is a vicar in the town, new to town, um, and her husband, like, try to find out, like, what happened to their daughter. And then you realize, oh, no, maybe all this evil is not just their history, but it's who they are. And, no, you know, it's. It's really intense. It's great. It's oh, wow. so cool. Awesome. When yeah. do you think we'll be seeing the, the fruits of that labor? There's always things. There's always yeah. like plates spinning. Sure. Um, but uh, I think we'll do it really. I mean, I think we'll do it this summer. Yeah. We'll shoot it. We're gearing up right now. In which case, you know, we'll start you'll see, seeing stuff soon. Chris Morgan, who I did Haunted with for Fox, we have a show, which is, uh, I don't know if you guys know Peter Straub. You probably do. Yeah, but yeah. it's a book of his called Floating Dragon, which we're making into a, a series. But it's kind of it meets Big Little Lies. It's kind of like what the oh, wow. idea. But um, and it was written the same time it, it you know because he wrote a bunch of movie a script a bunch of books with Stephen King. He wrote like the Talisman with him, and and then they were like compatriots. You know, they would write side by side, and 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 so when King wrote it, uh, Peter wrote Floating Dragon, and you can see kind of how they they have shared similarities but also very very different so that's a cool one i mean i hope we get that going it's wow. like, that would be amazing yeah, yeah it would be great. great that's so fun. i mean for people like us who love yeah exactly right yeah, definitely oh that's awesome <laughs> well 
thank you again so much for being here. Yeah, no, thank yeah. you. It's been an absolute you. pleasure. We can't wait to see Brahms, the boy too. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for you guys to see it. It's amazing. In theaters yeah. everywhere this Friday. Thank you again, man. Yes, Ben. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Woo! That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 108. Special thanks to our guest, William Brent Bell. Follow at William Brent Bell and at The Boy Movie on Instagram and see Brahms The Boy 2 in theaters everywhere at time of release, Friday, February 21st. Production tracks from this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's The Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt The Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales From The Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales From The Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.